Welcome to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast aims to bring the sermon from our Sunday morning service to you each and every week. We're currently in our sermon series, Next. The best is yet to come. For the past 20 years of Rolling Hills, we have seen God do more than we could ever imagine. Countless lives have been impacted for eternity. Many have professed their faith through baptism. Adults and children have grown in their faith through discipleship. Campuses have been launched in communities all throughout Middle Tennessee. And the vulnerable and the least have been served throughout the world. God has shown up time and time again, and now we faithfully look ahead to what is next for His church, knowing that it's not about us and our future, but about God and His perfect plan. Our prayer is that this will be a season that we look back on and see as one where God grew and stretched His people in ways He never has before. We're believing we will see restored relationships, miracles happen right before our eyes, radical salvations, and prodigals returning home. We believe for all of this and more. In this series, we're walking through the book of Nehemiah and how God's call on His people in that day is one He still has for us in 2023. May He find us faithful as we step forward, trusting that the best truly is yet to come. So listen in as we jump into what the Lord has for us today. All right. Well, if you want to grab your Bibles or maybe the app that you're uh, going to use on your phone, Nehemiah chapter 5 is where we're going to be. As I said earlier, we're in the middle of, uh, kind of really right in the middle of this uh, eight-week series through the 13 chapters of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, and the series is called Next. And it's really more than just a series, right? It's a discipleship initiative and a capital campaign as we look at what the next 20 years looks like for us as a church, as rolling hills across all of Middle Tennessee and right here in Columbia. What is next for us in, in, our, in, in the church, but also in our own hearts? What God has next for us, as Leo said, what God has next for us is what, and, and taking that courageous step, we want to look at what God has next for the next generation, uh, for the next ministry as we explore opportunities in Haywood Hills and in, in South Nashville, uh, opportunities that have been afforded there where we're going to have a, a ministry center there where to, to reach the community and uh, that area and also next mission as we move not only from the Amazon and Moldova, but explore other opportunities. Right now there's opportunities for us to, to begin missions work through Justice and Mercy International in Italy and sign me up for that, right? That's what I'm, I'm talking about. Uh, and I'm, I'm just joking. Well, I mean, I'm not joking, but uh, it, yeah, whatever. Um, and then really kind of that, what is the next one? Who's the next one? And this is what we talk about or why we celebrate and, and show videos of baptisms that happen at all across different campuses is because we recognize that for many, that next step, that next thing that God has for you is to take that obedient step in following Christ and, and then that public display of your walk with Christ in baptism. And so we, we believe that it's not just all of these initiatives. It really is the individual's lives who are transformed. 
as we start this campus here and kind of in the middle of uh, what we've called a soft launch. And some of you are here and this may be your first time. And again, maybe you came because of an invitation or you just saw the sign and are and excited about it. Uh, I, we're, we're thankful that you're here. Uh, we're really in the middle of a soft launch. We called, uh, we're, we're just trying to work out all of the details uh, and see kind of what, what works and what doesn't work. And so uh, you, you, as you come over the next several weeks, we'd love for you to be here. December 3rd is our official grand opening. Uh, and so I, I would say some things may look a little different between now and then as we just kind of figure out what, uh, what we need to do and how we need to structure the, 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 the facilities and those kind of things. But uh, we're glad that you're here to be a part of this. And we believe that God is doing something incredible in, in our midst across Middle Tennessee and specifically right here in Columbia as Rolling Hills uh, continues the, what God has called us to in this area. Uh, and I invite you to be a part of that 20 days of prayer, as we said. I think you can find more details on your worship guide. As we jump into chapter 5 of Nehemiah, I want to do a quick kind of recap, a little overview of where we've been, kind of a, just to catch us up. Maybe this is your first time to be here, so just kind of get everybody on the same page. Nehemiah is a book in the Old Testament. It's right before the book of Psalms, and it's in what is called the history books, right? The, the Old Testament is divided up into some different types of genres, and, and Nehemiah is one that is that kind of tells the history of the people of Israel. And so it's specifically in Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, it kind of tells the history of the people of Israel returning from exile to the Babylonians and to the Persians and coming back to the city where God had established as the people, as the, his place for his people, where his worship would happen. And so Nehemiah is the third in line. Zerubbabel comes back and he builds the temple. So the worship begins there. Then Ezra comes back and he establishes the worship again, kind of on what God's word says. And he begins to kind of teach the people, reminding them, of what God's word says, and then Nehemiah returns to rebuild the walls. When we get to chapter one of Nehemiah, Nehemiah has this incredible job. He's kind of got a high-level job in the Persian Empire. He's the cupbearer to the king, which means he's a close confidant of the, of the king of, of Persia. And so he comes in in chapter one, and he receives news that, that Jerusalem is in dismay. It's, it's destroyed. The walls are down, which means that the city is left vulnerable and without protection and peace and without hope. And it breaks, Jeremiah's, or it breaks Nehemiah's heart. And so he learns this, and we learn in chapter 1 of this, uh, of this wisdom and character because the first thing that he does is he doesn't rush into the, to the king's chamber. He, he prays and he begins to plan. And so in chapter 2, when he's given an opportunity, he presents that plan. And the king sends him back to, Jer to Jerusalem with not only sending him back, but with all of the things that he needs to rebuild the walls. And then chapter 3 uh, was kind of our first Sunday here, and it, it kind of gave us this picture of what it looked like for the people that were there in Jerusalem to rebuild the walls together. And shoulder to shoulder, they rebuilt the walls and the gates and kind of reestablished peace. And in, in the room, kind of one, one of those soft launch moments, we were able to circle up in the room and just be reminded of what it looks like for the people of God to, to join together and shoulder to shoulder shoulder to do the work that God's called us to do. It was an exciting moment for us, one that I won't forget and for a long time. Chapter 4, we looked at last week, and we were reminded of something that I need to be reminded of on a, on a regular basis, that opposition comes when you're doing the work that God's called you to do, that they were doing good work, rebuilding the walls, doing exactly what God called them to do. They found themselves in the center of God's will, and into that, 
there was opposition. And we were reminded that when we face that opposition, we prepare for opposition. We're not blindsided, but we recognize that that's something that comes when we walk with Jesus and we're living a life that's faithful to him and walking in obedience to him. But then we pray and then we post a guard and then we continue the work that God's called us to. In chapter 5, this week what we're going to see is the conflict that was outside of the people kind of moves inside. We know this, that this happens a lot of times as well when we're walking with the Lord and and that there seems to not only be conflict that comes from the outside, but conflict that comes from the inside. This conflict arises from among the Jewish people as some in the Jewish, as some of the Jews there that are, that are together with the others that, that, that have, that have resources are beginning to take advantage of their brothers and sisters inside their own community. And Nehemiah hears about it. He addresses the problem with some tough but truthful words to his friends. And he says, what you're doing is wrong and something has to change. I don't know if you're aware of this thing that pastors do. Uh, I am shamefully aware of it because I feel like I do it way more than I, than I want to uh, recognize. But, but when, we, when we come to a new series or a passage, uh, you'll probably hear me say this on a regular basis. When, when we start a new series or we get to a passage on a Sunday morning, how excited I am that we're working through this passage, right? I'll, talk, I'll say it. I'll be like, I love this passage. I'm really excited. I love this series we're working through. And, it's like, and then we get to a new series and it's like, I love this series. And it's like every, it's like just like when I was a kid, like the thing that I loved to eat the most was whatever was in front of me, right? That was my favorite food. Like this was my favorite sandwich. It was just like the sandwich that I had yesterday, but it's the, anyway, it's still kind of the same thing today. Uh, but I, 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 whatever it is, and, and I say this honestly, whatever we're working through really is the most exciting thing. Because I believe God's doing some incredible things as we open up his word together. His word doesn't return void. But I'll be honest with you this week as we approach Nehemiah chapter 5, I am not excited about this one. I'm not. To be honest, as I read this one uh, and, and, and kind of studied and prepared, I, 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 the reality of the, this week as I prepared in Nehemiah chapter 5, this passage cut me wide open this week. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And nothing in all creation is, is hidden from God's sight and everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who we must give account. And I'll tell you, I felt that double-edged sword this week. I felt that double-edged sword as I was preparing this week, as it uncovered this, the, the darkness and some, that it was a light that penetrated some darkness in my own soul that I was not exactly excited about being illuminated. And so I want to share that with you. I want you to feel the same. I'm just... But I, I believe that what we're going to work through this morning is probably going to step on some of your toes. It stepped all over mine this week. And I want you to be prepared for that. But I'm not going to hold back from it because I believe it was the good kind of cutting that happened for me this week. And I believe it's the right kind of cutting and kind of opening and, and, and exposing some things in our own lives that we need to hear and so we're going to walk through Nehemiah chapter 5, but before we jump into that pass, to the passage specifically, let's pause and ask the Lord to continue to bless this morning. Lord, we thank you that we get to gather in this place. What an incredible gift. God, I just can't get over it, and I don't want to get over it. 
your provision to give us this place for, us, for your church to gather and worship. And God, we pray that even as, I, as, as we don't get over your provision of this place, that we would not let this place become an idol, but God, we would let it become a, we would let it be what it is, a platform, a tool, a building that you've given us where your church can meet and then, be, then move from out into the world that you've put us in. We celebrate it, and God, we thank you for what you're doing. I thank you for your word, and God, the way that it did, the way that it was a sharp sword for me this week, and I pray that it would be that same thing for our body this morning, as you would expose in us, that you would shine the light into dark caverns in our hearts and draw us near to you and loosen our hands on the things that we grip too tightly to. It's in Christ's strong and mighty name that we pray. Amen and amen. So as we start, if you have your worship guide, you're following along. The first thing that kind of we get to as we work in this passage in verses 1 through 6 is that there's a problem that's exposed. And if you hear the, hear the word of the Lord, it says this in, in Nehemiah 5 verses 1 through 6. It says, now men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we, are, we and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and to stay alive, we must get grain and still others we're saying we've mortgaged our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. In verse 4, still others were saying we've, we've had to borrow to pay the king's tax on the fields and the vineyards. And although we are the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews and although our children are as good as theirs, yet we've, we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And Nehemiah says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. The reality of what's going on for, the Jew, for, for Nehemiah and the, and the Jewish people there in Jerusalem is that it's a, this is a pretty bad state of affairs for them. It's a big deal what's happening for these people in this place. And just kind of give us a little bit of a history lesson this morning. You know, again, they've returned from Persia. They've been exiled in Persia. They've come back. That in and of itself is an incredible thing. People that go into exile usually don't come back from that exile. But they did. Praise the Lord for that. But this Persian government that gave them a lot of freedom to return also taxes them pretty heavily. And so they have to pay these taxes, and the king's taxes can't be paid in grain or, or by giving their fields. They have to be paid in silver and gold. And so they're doing their best to make sure that they keep up with the taxes that they have to pay to be able to live. And so the taxes are very high, and, and not, not only have they returned, and they've, they've been busy doing the rebuilding of the temple and the reestablishing of the worship in the city. And then in the process of that, as the city is, has gone and the, the, the walls have, become, have gone up and the people begin to feel more secure and the population has grown. But even in the midst of that, they haven't had time to tend the fields and to do the things that they need to do to be able to provide for their families the way they need to provide. And so they're living in want. They don't have all that they need to take care of their families. And so they've had to borrow and they found themselves in kind of a cycle where they don't, where they're, where they're, they're underwater and they're having a hard time living. And, and I, like, I know what it looks like. And maybe you've been here at this point where, where maybe you're here right now where you've, where you've had to just to live, you've had to borrow money. You've had to borrow on things and, and run up kind of dead in those kind of places. And to put it bluntly, on one side, I have to say this, that some of that is because we've just been trying to keep up with the Joneses. 
And I don't know why the Joneses were picked for that, but I know some Joneses. They're great people. Uh, but, but they, you know, you got, you, maybe we're just trying to keep up with them or some other Joneses out there. I don't know exactly who the Joneses are that we're keeping up with. But it's clear that in this community in Middle Tennessee, that's a part of our lives is that we feel like we have to keep up with the Joneses. All of our hearts are subject to those things. Mine, yours, all of our hearts are subject, and I can slip into those things just as easily as some of us in this room. And so some of us, if we find ourselves there, to be honest and to be, just to say it clearly, we just need to address that selfishness in our own hearts, that vanity in our own hearts, that greed in our own hearts, and repent and walk with the Lord in the way he's called us to walk and living within our means. Because honestly, if you find yourself in that place just because you're trying to keep up with the Joneses, that's a whole different story. That's not what's happening here necessarily. What's happening here is that, that maybe you've been in the place where I know Rebecca and I have been in this place as well on a, on a couple of occasions where we just didn't have enough to do the things that we had to do. And it wasn't because we were trying to do more and trying to keep up with other people. It's just we were just trying to live life and it got a little bit thin. And we found ourselves in places that I don't, that digging holes that were hard to get out of. And I know that there may be some of, some of us in the room that find ourselves in those places. And listen, I want you to hear this, that, that God knows where you are. Right? And, and we want to make wise decisions on how we spend and how we use the resources that we have. But if you found yourself in that place and you find yourself being taken advantage where you feel like you just can't get out of it, right, that God hears your cries and he knows where you are and he wants to bring about the help that, he, that, that you need to get out of those places. It's the picture that we get here in Nehemiah is that they've, they've been overrun with debt because they don't have the ability to, to pay the things that they need to pay. Now, again, this is, a, this is a balance, this is a, a real thin line on living lavishly and doing, doing things that, that, that are outside of that, just, just being able to live. But what's happening here is they're not able to live. And in the midst of that, there are people that are there taking advantage of them, which is really the problem. That there are those that are inside of their family that are beginning to take advantage of them. And, and, and they're in the process of need, they've borrowed. And in the, in the borrowing, they've charged interest. And for, for us, right, interest is a pretty normal thing. Right? It's not something that, we, it's something that we've seen before. It's, it's normal life for us. And, but, this, but, but this is the way. So there's some things that God has told them to do. That, that in, in, in doing the research, it's not even an excessive amount of interest. It, it's just really just a basic interest to, to do those things. But the final straw that kind of comes down where Nehemiah gets to the point of really being, being angry and burning in anger on it is that these creditors begin demanding that their children be sold into slavery. And it's not the same kind of slavery that that a lot of what we think a lot of times is more like an indentured servant, but truly they faced a situation where they could have lost their children because of it. And even some commentators believe that that second reference to their daughters being sold into slavery was more, more along the lines of, of a, a trafficking kind of situation where they would sell them into slavery to the Persian government to kind of stay uh, what, or delay kind of foreclosures on their land. The issue is that God had given his people a different way. 
God had told his people that this, that this is not how you're going to handle these things. And in, in, in Exodus and in Leviticus, he had told them the ways that how they were going to lend and how they were going to mortgage and how they would, what, what they would do internally with each other. It wasn't, it wasn't forbidden for them to charge interest to those outside of the people of God, but inside of the, inside of the people of God, inside the Israelites, the Jewish people, they were not allowed to charge interest on each other in these moments and taking advantage of them to pay off these debts. And so it comes down to it, it's, it's bad. There's lots of good things that are happening, but, but there's some fabric in the society that have become, is beginning to unravel and it's a big deal. And here again, what we see in Nehemiah, what we've seen over and over again is this great example of leadership, this, this character of this man that when these people bring this problem to him, he doesn't bury his head, but he addresses it head on. He takes on the challenge and he goes to these individuals that are doing the thing that is not what God's called them to do. And he says, he, he says, I want you to repent. He gives a call to repentance. So if you're following along, the second thing is that there's a call to repentance. So he gives them this call to repentance in verse 6. Again, it says, I heard the outcry and I, uh, these, of these charges and I was very angry. One of the things that I think that we need to hear on this and, and, and hold on to this morning is that Nehemiah hears the cry of the people that come to him. He's not too busy. I mean, he's the governor of the people of this, of this region. The, the Persian king has sent him to this place. He's given him this incredible job to be governor, to lead this area. And, and in the midst of that, in the trouble that he, all the things that he's got responsibility for, when these individuals bring their problem before him, he hears it. I want you to know, and I said this a second ago, I want you to know that God hears your cry. When you find yourself in trouble, when you find yourself in these moments of, of peril, whether it's because of situations like this or, or, or whatever it may be, that God hears your cry the same way that Nehemiah heard their cry. We all need to recognize that what Scripture says is that we are all poor, and powerless. And that ultimately, when we come to Christ, it's not that we come in our own strength, it's that we come in our weakness and say, God, we death desperately need you because without you, we have nothing. We have nothing to bring before you. We're poor and wretched and sinners who need you. And he hears our cry in those moments. Nehemiah heard their cry and it says that he was, he burned with anger i tell you that, honestly, uh, more often than not, the noise that around, that's around me keeps me from hearing the cry of those who are in need for the, for the least and the last in our society. And personally, maybe it's sometimes <clears throat> not only that I don't hear it because of the noise, it's my own jaded kind of views on things. This is part of where it, it really kind of cut me this week is that I've, I have colored and prideful views on things. And so it keeps me from listening sometime or I have cold and cynical responses that automatically bubble up rather than actually listening to what's going on and responding to those who are in need in the same way that Christ responded to me when I was in need. Nehemiah, 7, Nehemiah 5 verse 7, it says this, that I pondered these things. As he burned with anger, it says that he was ablaze with anger, that he pondered these things in his mind. And then he accused the nobles and the officials. We don't have time necessarily to walk through all of these, all of what's going on here. But, but it, it says first that he, that he, that he was, he admits that he was angry. 
And, and I, I think we've got we've to come back and be like, okay, how is that okay, right? Scripture tells us not to lose our temper. Well, it doesn't say that he lost his temper, does it? It says that he was burning with anger at what he was told, but he doesn't lose his temper. He controls that because what it says ultimately, he was angry over the things that anger God, right? God's pretty clear throughout Scripture that he, he has his eyes on the plot of the poor and the powerless. Proverbs 14, verse 31, he says, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt to their maker. Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 and 8, it says, If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns and the lands that the Lord has given you, do not be, dis- do not be hard-hearted and tight-fisted towards them, but rather open-handed and freely lend to them whatever they need. So he's angry about the things that anger God. And secondly, he doesn't sin in his anger. He burns with anger about what's happening, but he doesn't sin in that anger. And that's what Paul tells us in Ephesians, not to sin in our anger. So in the, in the moments where he's angry about this, when he sees that oppression and the powerlessness and he begins, the people that are taking advantage of them and he, his heart burns with anger, maybe we ought to have a little more of this in our own lives when we see people being taken advantage of. Maybe when we see our friends and our neighbors or those in our community groups or, or people that we know that, we're, that, that claim to walk with Jesus, but they're walking in sin, maybe we should burn with anger a little bit more, but not sin in that anger. Like Nehemiah, that it sets our hearts ablaze that people are walking in rebellion to what God has called them to, meaning that in that walking in rebellion, they're not walking in the fullness of what God has for them. He says, it says, rather than walking to them and and addressing them, it says he ponders in his mind. And the, the ESV, the English Standard Version, says he took counsel within himself. He didn't fly off the handle. He didn't lose control. He addresses them. He addresses the issue with, with candor and understanding what was going on. The, the great uh, commentator uh, Matthew Henry says this, that he did not say or do anything hasty or rash or without due consideration. This is another place that really cut me open this week. And uh, I know that my wife is like, amen, that's good for you to catch on to that. He says he doesn't, he doesn't do anything that's hasty or rash or without due consideration. Before rebuking the nobles, he consulted within himself what to say when to say it, and how to say it. Make this note, Matthew Henry says, reproof must be given with great consideration that what is well meant may not come, come up short of what, it, of what is intended because it was not well managed. That reproof must be given with great consideration that what was well meant might not come up short what, what, of what was intended Because it was not well managed, reproof and instruction gives life. But even wise men can lose the benefit of their instruction and their wisdom, sometimes for want of consultation within themselves and taking time to deliberate and understand what needs to be said and when it needs to be said and how it needs to be said. So Nehemiah, he addresses them. In verse 8, it says this, that I told them, you're charging your own people interest. And so I called them together a large meeting to deal with them. And I said to them, it says, as far as it is possible, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. And now we're selling our own people only to have them sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could not find anything to say. Verse 9. And so I continued, what you are doing is not right. 
Shouldn't you walk in the fear of, the, of, of our God and avoid reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending money, people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields and their vineyards and their olive groves and their houses and also the interest that you have charged them. One percent of the money, grain, and the new wine and the olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. And if you skip down to verse 13, the second half of that, it says, And at this the whole assembly said, Amen. Praise the Lord. And the people did what they had promised. He comes to them and he gives them this radical, countercultural kind of call this countercultural call to generosity, but it's a God-centered call to generosity. But if, but if you look at these verses, what comes next is not only that he does he give them this call, this God-centered call to generosity, right? He also gives them a motivation for what that call looks like and how they're to, to, to do that, how they're out to carry out this call. And so the third thing that's on your worship, God, is this, that, that there's a motivation for change that is provided, there's a motivation for change that is provided. That when, they, when he's presented, he presents them with the reality that what they're doing is not right. And he says, this is how we, re- how we make this, this situation right. That, that we respond in, in generosity. And, and the, the, the response to generosity, the, the thing that, that, that kind of the counter to our greed, that the, what, what fixes our greed is this radical kind of generosity where we give and he says he's like completely counter to what, what, is, what is normal. He's, they're going to give back everything. And the motivation begins with this. It's the fear of the Lord. Verses 9 and verse 15, he says it twice. In verse 15 in the NIV it says in reverence. But both places it's this, this phrasing, this language of the fear of the Lord. We do this out of the fear of the Lord. And honestly, that's a place that I don't think that we, especially in our culture today, we don't really get what that means. And, and it's almost like we push back against it because we're like, God is love. And what does that mean if we fear him and we love him? So I'll, I'll take just a second because I think that it's important for us to know that this, this fear of God that's given to us in this passage is 125 times, over 125 times throughout the Old Testament and the New. The fear of God is not just something that's, that's relegated to the Old Testament. It's a part of the whole counsel of Scripture that we are to fear the Lord. So what does that mean? What does it mean to fear the Lord? To fear the Lord, it says in, in the Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom. To be wise, for us to walk in wisdom... The beginning of that is for us to fear the Lord. It says again in, in, in the Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. That in fearing the Lord, we find the fountain of life. And so these things, it may, it may sound like we want to push back against it in normal places. But, but to understand it inside of that, right, that, that the whole counsel of Scripture, that fear of the Lord is, is something that God's called us to. And it's the beginning of wisdom and a fountain of life. Here's what it means. It's to understand that he alone is central in life. That everything that's created was created by him and for him and through him to give him glory, that he, give, he is the giver of life and breath and everything. If you hold life in your hands, if he gives you life and he can take away life, 
there's a reverence for him that is understandable and awe of him that is understandable. That fear that he's the center of all of life, that, that all of our lives is oriented around him because we understand that he is central. He's the giver of life and breath and everything. That all of our lives is oriented around him, around his word, around his character, his promises and his commands that he's given to us. That we orient our lives, that we rotate around him. It's not that he rotates around us. We're not the center, he's the center, and all of our lives rotates around him and his character, his promises, his word, and his commands, which give life. Because of that, we're aware of God's presence and his power that produces this deep humility and great awe. If we were truly aware of God's presence among us, Billy Graham said that if we understood the presence of God being in all places at all times and the Holy Spirit being inside of those who have called himself, called them, called him Savior, that he's taken up residence inside of us. So not only is he all around us, but he's inside of us, that God is in all places at all times completely. If we understood his presence, it would change everything about the way we live. So we understand that he's central to all things. We orient our lives around him. We have an awareness of his presence and his power that produces this deep humility before him and all of him. One author says this, that kind of the, the summary of it is that we truly take God seriously. Maybe some of you grew up in, in church. I mean, maybe you've, you, you've had, those, you, you had those experiences in, in VBS and maybe Sunday school like myself where, where you had felt board Jesus, right? And, and, and anybody know what I'm talking about, right? Where they put Jesus on a felt board and he looks so meek and tender and, and mild and, and sweet. But, but, but that's the Jesus that we live with. And if you don't know what felt board Jesus is, that's fine. You don't need to know what it is. But we have this picture of him. Maybe you grew up singing songs and, and, and maybe, maybe you haven't grown past that understanding of, of who God is when we were children. But we've got to expand that to understanding of who he really is and to take him seriously. More seriously than we take anything else in all of life, any person, anything else in all of life. Because when we do that, it changes the way that we act. It changes the way that we worship. It changes the way that we worship. It changes the way that we give and share the things that he's given to us. So we understand the fear of the Lord as the beginning of that motivation. And then we reject those norms What's the motivation is that we reject what's normal in our society and our culture. And it's, it's not like it's new for us. It's not like this place that we live in is different from what was happening in Jerusalem right here in the book of Nehemiah. It's the same things, the same sin, the same things that are creeping, the same sicknesses that are creeping up in the hearts of these people creep up in our hearts. And the only answer is for us to do things the way that God said to do them. And that's counter to the culture that surrounds us. So that Charging interest, we said this a second ago, charging interest for them was normal. 
right? They lived in a place where charging interest was normal. It was not uncommon. It was widely accepted practice, but it was not the thing that God had called his people to do when they were dealing in business with their own people. So what do we understand of that? We have to understand, we have to see ourselves in that same place. And you're like, I don't have a business. I'm not charging interest. Okay, I get it. But, but see past what, what's right there in front of us and understand what's really going on is the way that we live has got to be counter to the way that our society says to live. Where our society says, get it and hold on to it. It's yours and nobody can take it. But the way that God says, the, the economy that God says that we live in is that we live open-handed and we share the resources that he's given us. That he's given it to us so that we can share it with others. And that's not easy for us to understand. It's not easy for us to grasp because we see all these other people and the way that they're doing it. But ultimately he's saying, listen, I'm asking you to be open-handed with it. Because I can do more with it than you can. I can do more good with it than you can. In investing in others and saying, God, I give you back what you've given me and the way that you've called me to do it, then, then, I, then I believe that you can do more with it than what I can do with it. Even as Leo said it a second ago, that, that God can multiply that. God can use it in ways that, that, that reaches lives and transforms lives. And when we live that way, it's so counterculture to our community that people see it and they want to know what's going on. When we live in that kind, of, that kind of awareness of God's presence and the fear of God and say, God, I'm going to do with my things that you've given me the way that you've called me to do it, not the way my society, not the way that the people that I live around me, not the way that my family says that I should do it, but I'm going to do it in obedience to you, even though I don't necessarily understand it. I believe that you will do more with it than what I'm going to do with it. So I want to live generously with the things that you've given me. And then he gives an example. If you continue to read in the passage, he gives an example of this entitlement, what he was entitled to and how he rejected that entitlement. He was, he was entitled to a, a huge percentage. And being given that job of governor, he was entitled to this huge percentage uh, to charge the taxes of the people, but he knew that would give a, a, a real heavy burden on them, so he didn't charge that tax. But he was in the midst of that. He was still generous, inviting multiple people to his home and defeating lots and lots of people out of his own, out of what he had already. He didn't take what he, was, what he was entitled to. He could have taken all this, but he said he didn't. And I'm, I asked the question of what it would look like for us in our homes if we didn't, if we didn't take what we thought, thought what we were entitled to in our relationships, husbands in your relationship with your wife, wives in your relationship with your husband, kids in your relationship with your parents and, and back and forth. What would it look like at work if we didn't choose to take all that we were entitled to and yet we gave and said, I want to be a servant. I want to lay down my rights. How countercultural that would be. He gives them this personal example to be a motivation to live generous and we see that in, in Scripture, not only is this a, something that Nehemiah does, but we see this picture 
That Nehemiah, who is, new, who is a cupbearer to the king, he gives generously and he lives not entitled, but Christ, who is not a cupbearer, but he was the king. He laid down all the comforts of heaven and put on flesh to dwell among us. And as the band comes back up, I want you to hear these, this passage and let this passage be kind of our prayer from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, where it says this, Therefore, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourselves not looking at your own interest, but each of you at the interest of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in the human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, may your word not return void. May it soften our hearts. May it be a light that exposes those places in our hearts that we need to present to you. May it loosen our hands because we've seen it loosen the hands of others. And let our motivation be that we orient our lives completely around you trusting you more than we trust ourselves, taking you more seriously than we take anything else. It's in Christ, strong and mighty name that we pray. Amen and amen. Let's sing together. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with any friends and family in your life who may benefit from it. And make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download Church Center, our Rolling Hills app. Follow us on social media or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.